Good morning. Welcome to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Uh, up and down weekend for the Toronto Blue Jays. Up and down performance-wise, certainly up emotion-wise. Uh, tremendous ceremony honoring Jose Batista on Saturday and really the whole weekend. It was well done. They hit most of the notes pretty spot on. Jose Batista very clearly appreciated all of it. It uh, looks like the fan base and the city really appreciated getting to celebrate Jose Batista as well. Uh, Performance-wise, it started mostly down. Blue Jays lose 6-2 on Friday. A game that, look, here, here's where it's at when your offense is sputtering the way the Jays has been uh, on any day of the week that is not a Sunday lately. You get down 3 nothing in the first inning, and it feels like that is not something you're going to come back from. That was the case on Friday. Uh, they jump The Cubs jump on Jose Barrios for two home runs early on, including a big one from Cody Bellinger. Uh, the Jays just can't muster much from there. Wasn't even one of those days where it's an issue with hitting and runners in scoring position because you have to get runners in scoring position to struggle hitting with runners in scoring position, and the Jays did not do that. Two small positives from Friday's game were a Brandon Belt home run and three and two-thirds Clean relief from Bowden Francis. He allowed one walk, didn't allow a hit, uh, continues to fill in pretty well uh, when asked to mop up. Now, hasn't gotten his way into leverage situations yet, as you'd expect for a guy who's coming up and down, uh, but he really has done a good job soaking up innings for this bullpen at times. Hagen Danner had gotten the call uh, to potentially do the same thing. He unfortunately left his debut with an oblique strain and had to hit the IL that led to uh, Nate Pearson being recalled later in the weekend. So tough one for, for Hagen Danner there. Now Saturday rolls around. It's Jose Batista day. You think, Hey, maybe that gives them uh, a big boost. Maybe there'll be some home runs, some bat flips. They lose five, four. Whit Merrifield hits a two-run home run. Santiago Espinal has a, a clutch hit, but uh, it being a ground rule double instead of a, a standard double keeps one extra run from crossing. And then uh, Jordan Hicks allows a game-winning run in the ninth. So they lose 5-4. Sunday rolls around. Edwin Encarnacion gets special permission from Major League Baseball to be in the dugout, to be in uniform. And wouldn't you know it, the opportunity to walk the parrot uh, gets the Blue Jays offense right it didn't look great out of the gate Hyunjin Ryu was a, a little unlucky early he walked a batter and then there was an error at first base and then the Cubs tacked on a couple runs uh, with two outs in a situation where Ryu should should have been out of the inning now he finishes that game with five innings zero earned runs only the two Burts uh, two hits two walks three strikeouts so another great step forward for Hyunjin Ryu and then the bullpen picks him up from there. Uh, Jay Jackson gives up a, a two-run home run. First time he's given up runs since the Aaron Judge home run that incited the whole incident. Um, but otherwise, nice and clean. And then the Jays' bats get to work. Five runs second inning, three runs in the fourth, three runs in the eighth. They had not scored more than four runs in a game all week. Uh, Monday to Saturday, they'd scored 13 runs over six games. And now they've bookended that stretch with 13 against Boston and 11 against the Cubs. Great day for Dalton Varsho, who hit a three-run home run and added another uh, couple of RBI to give him a career-high five. Danny Jansen continues to get on base uh, the hard way. He has been hit by five pitches in his last 27 plate appearances now and eight in his last 23 games. Uh, it's a lot. Santiago Espinal continued a, a pretty solid weekend for himself, and every Blue Jay except Danny Jansen Got a hit. Now, Danny Jansen was on base three times because he got hit by a pitch twice and walked once. So uh, don't take that as a negative. Whit Merrifield has a four hit day coming off of the day where he homered. And even Paul DeYoung 
comes through with a an RBI single in the eighth just to make sure everyone has some positives on the ledger. So pretty good game overall, 11-4. We'll see if that bounces the Jays uh, back into a bit of a groove now not to uh, kick at that football uh, a couple of times um, <laughs> with the offense getting going and things. But uh, we'll we'll see how that goes. Now, standings update-wise, the Jays are are 66 and 54. They are still in the third wild card spot. They are two and a half games back of Houston. They are three games back of Tampa Bay. Um, they are eight games back of Baltimore in the division. Of course, now Seattle closed that gap for a little bit. That gaps back to one and a half games right now. So uh, Jays sit at 66.1% chance at the playoffs based on the current fan graphs odds this morning. They have a day off today. This is the stretch of a whole bunch of days off. They're off today. They'll play the Phillies for two down at Rogers center. Another off day. They'll head to Cincinnati for three, another off day. And then it's the big series with the Baltimore Orioles, where if you're heading into that one role in a little bit, it could be a pretty big series. Now, if you sputter on your way to that, then that eight game gap could be even bigger. Maybe that series doesn't matter a ton. It is worth remembering too, that coming out of that series, the Jays hit their softest two weeks of schedule that they'll face the entire season. So you want to be playing your best baseball for that Baltimore series. You want to be playing your best baseball as the schedule turns a little weaker and you have some opportunity to make up ground in the standings, make up ground or put insulation between yourselves and Seattle. Now, Again, that requires you playing your best baseball. As Joe Siddle's fond of saying, uh, it doesn't, the schedule doesn't matter if you're not playing well uh, because every team can beat you on a given night. We'll see if the Blue Jays can use these couple of off days to reset, rest up the bullpen, rest up the rotation, and maybe get the bats going again uh, around those games. A very special day down at Rogers Center on Saturday, honoring Jose Batista. Big part of that day, big part of telling the story on the television broadcast was Buck Martinez. He joins us now. Buck, good morning. How are you? I'm doing well, Blake. How are you? I am excellent. Uh, I guess before we get into any of the specifics, just high level, how did you enjoy Saturday? No, it was awesome. I, I thought the Blue Jays did a tremendous job of highlighting uh, Jose's great career. And um, emotionally, you could see he was overwhelmed with emotion because he, he brought back so many great memories of his run here. And things didn't really turn around for Jose until he got here with Cito Gaston and Dwayne Murphy, the hitting coach, and they kind of... Uh, unlocked his great skills and uh, he became one of the most prolific home run hitters in Blue Jays history. When you look back at that era, you, you mentioned, you know, things didn't turn around until Jose got here and Murphy and Cito. Um, the path that the Blue Jays could have been headed down, you know, they trade away Roy Halladay. It looks like they're heading into a longer term rebuild. And then Jose Batista becomes Jose Batista to a uh, an important extent, but maybe a little lesser Edwin becomes Edwin and the team has to turn it and say, Hey, look, we're being competitive now. How much do you think that changes the, you know, the fate and the direction of the franchise, Jose Batista becoming Jose Batista at the time that he did. I think it changed everything. And, and Jose reminded us when he was on the air with us that he was very vocal in 2014 at the trade deadline. I remember it specifically. We were in Houston, and uh, he and Casey Jansen were the, the more veteran players, and uh, they were hopeful of getting some help at that trade deadline, and it didn't happen. And they both spoke out, and um, you know he received a lot of criticism from that. But I think at the same time, it was kind of like a message, hey, we're ready to win here now, and we need some help. 
and then they got to 2015, and they were about a 500 team right before the trade deadline. And then all of a sudden, here comes David Price and Troy Tulowitzki and Troy Hawkins and Derek Lowe and Ben Revere. And they unloaded and got all these great players, and that certainly propelled them to two terrific seasons in 15 and 16. So, Buck, when you're a part of that day, and there are obviously all of these tributes and players and coaches who have been a part of Jose's uh, journey, and then you also hear your own voice in a bunch of the calls, uh, how fun is that for you as a kind of side wrinkle to a, a day like Saturday? Yeah, it was interesting because uh, on Friday we had a chance to talk with Jose around the batting cage and some of the, the current Blue Jays, and we were talking about home runs. And, you know, he hit his 50th home run in the first inning against King Felix Hernandez from Seattle. And it was a one nothing game. That was it. And that was number 50, and he'd go on to hit 54, which is still the record for the Blue Jays. But he also hit a home run that we talked about in Seattle against Edwin Diaz. And it was afternoon you could barely see he had fouled off a couple of tough pitches and then hit a monster home run into the second deck in seattle to win the ball game but yeah he had some great moments and it was fun uh reliving those moments and watching the highlights uh, as they put that terrific video together to uh give him praise it was an awesome week awesome weekend overall so uh, you, you mentioned that you were down uh, around the cages with, with Jose and some of the current crop. Did you get the sense that, you know, this current team appreciated Saturday as well, even though, you know, n- not very many of those guys, well, none of them were, were around during 2015, 2016, but the, the sense of, you know, hey, this was really special. Jose's really special. That moment to the, to baseball in this city was really special. Do you think the, the current crop of guys got a real appreciation of that as well? No question they did. And uh, John Snyder talked about that before. He said, whenever you can uh, look back at some of the great moments and some of the great players in the history of a franchise, everybody wants to embrace that. And we could see it during the ceremony. And in fact, both teams, the Cubs and the Blue Jays, were at the top step of the rail watching the entire ceremony. And, you know, a lot of them didn't know the details of his career, but uh, the video certainly highlighted that. And then the people talked about it afterwards. But, yeah, I I know that the uh, younger players really had a chance to embrace who Jose Bautista was and uh, what a great career yet so as part of this weekend who did you who'd you get to see and catch up with that you were really excited to uh to chop it up with down there well I mean, you know what we saw a lot of them i saw Devin travis and ryan Gones. they came into the booth and russell martin was there and, and of course seeing john gibbons and cito uh, i hadn't seen Gibby in a while uh, cito and i played the same golf course in florida so i see him quite a bit but you know just to have that many guys come back and you know russell martin and jose played college ball together down in florida and then they were teammates in the great run but um you know and i think that you know the bat flip home run was the highlight of everything and it was such an emotional turnaround. Uh, it looked like the Blue Jays were going to be eliminated from the postseason, and then Texas made some errors at the table for the home run, and he delivered. But that's what Jose could do. He loved the spotlight and the pressure. The, the more intense the pressure was, it brought out the best in Bautista. Yeah, great photo from the weekend. You mentioned Bautista and Russell Martin uh, sharing the Chipola College background at Bowden Francis, one of those as well, and then Jeff Johnson, who coached them all uh, up as well so Bowden Francis posted a, a nice photo of that um Buck Edwin also stuck around he he was in the the dugout on Sunday now I'm not going to credit him entirely for turning the offense around uh but what did you see differently yesterday that that we hadn't seen the last week or so um you know in, in that offensive explosion 11 runs after a week in which they only scored 13 total the six games prior 
Yeah, I, I think uh, when we had Mo on the air from the dugout, and he talked about it, how he felt like the team in general had been indecisive in their game plans, where they hadn't really cleared their mind as to what pitch they wanted to hit. And I thought they got back on the fastball yesterday very effectively, and they kind of sorted out their thoughts. And everybody in the lineup had a hit except Danny Jansen, and he got on base twice. And uh, it was just an overall good day for the offense, and hopefully uh, that momentum will continue into Tuesday night against the Phillies. So, yeah, you you mentioned uh, your conversation with Bo, and I, I thought it was really interesting that he had kind of said, yeah, indecisive in, in some spots, maybe not sticking to, to one pitch. Um, obviously, you know, that's it's going to be a little different for each guy. And, and Bo's someone who has been succeeding with runners in scoring position or, or in situations with two outs. Um, you know, it's one area that, that Vlad has been pretty solid in. When you look at everyone else and the inability to come through in that, um, what what does that adjustment have to be? Because it, it seems to me that, you know, sticking to a plan like that, identifying one pitch early, that is, it, it maybe is in that, that category of easier said than done. Is it, is it just a, a patience thing and a discipline thing with the guys who are having trouble with that, or, or is this a more, you know, fundamental change in how you're going up in those moments? Yeah, I don't know if there's a, any kind of mechanical adjustment you can make in those situations. Mm-hmm. I, I think you talked about it, having a game plan, sticking to the game plan, and if you don't get that pitch, pass the baton on to the next hitter. And that's what we saw more consistently. I think Dan and I both talked about the fact that we haven't seen many innings where the Blue Jays could string hits together, and I think that was the big difference. They put pressure on him, and of course we got to talk about Dalton Barshow. He, he had a big game, and it's been a, a, a tough season for him, and, and to his credit, he has never allowed his struggles with the bat to interfere with his play in the field or on the bases. And he's a terrific guy. You can see how everybody supports him so well. He hasn't had the type of season he's hoped for in his first year, but he made some good adjustments. And the first, uh, the, the three-run home run, he had a high fastball. That's pitch has been giving him a lot of trouble. So hopefully that's a, a sign of things to come for Dalton. And you mentioned, you know, trying to do other things to contribute the the defense, the base running. He's also, he leads the team in games. He's been in 118 of those things. So even uh, even when he hasn't started, he, he's been in the mix there. So hopefully that's something that can turn around. You mentioned the, um, you know, hitting the high fastball there, whether it's that or just Varsho getting going in general. If we look ahead, Buck, to when Bo's back and what this lineup kind of looks like top to bottom, how key is Varsho to that bottom half of the order, having a little bit of juice and being able to turn the lineup over for, you know, guys like Bo at the top? Yeah, he's very important, and obviously his ability to get on base, and then he can steal bases, and um, yeah, he needs to uh, continue to swing the bat. He and Don Mattingly have been working hard together lately. Mattingly, of course, was a great left-handed hitter, and I, I think... You know, when you know, and as Marshall does, he knows exactly who Don Mattingly was as a player. So now he's starting to give him some drills that might allow him to get to that ball a little more frequently. So I, I think he's a very important part of this team. And obviously they, they made a big trade and gave up some good players for him, and they want him to have success. And yeah, this year and long term, he, he's a part of what they're trying to do there. Um, Buck, on, as we turn the page to this Phillies series ahead, off day today, of course, and then a two set down at Rogers Center, you say Kikuchi will get the ball in the opener here. I, I know you and Dan spoke it during Yusei Kikuchi's last start about some of what's made this turnaround happen for him. How far has your confidence grown in, in seeing Yusei Kikuchi out there every fifth or sixth day? 
I think uh, everybody is confident in him. Uh, the manager, the pitching coach, all the players, the way he's throwing the ball, and the fact that he's only walked 35 guys and struck out 125. I think that's the big thing. That His stuff has always been this good. Uh, you know, he's always had a good fastball. It's been as high as 97 miles an hour this year. But what he's done this year is he's thrown the curveball in there, and it gives him uh, another pitch that's slower than his fastball and his slider, and it gives the uh, hitters another look and a different type of velocity. So I think that has had a lot to do with his success because, you know, he lost a tough game in Cleveland. He went seven innings, gave up three hits and no runs, and lost that game one to nothing. So right now he's pitching with as much confidence as I've seen in him throughout his career. And I, I think, you know, you could argue if you're going to open up a series, depending on the opponent, he would be the guy that you'd send out there the way he's thrown right now. I was going to ask that next because it's something that, yeah, I look ahead to, you know, maybe that Baltimore series next week where that's a lefty heavy team and it's a ballpark that doesn't treat right-handed power hitters particularly well to left field there. Um, you know, he strikes me as a guy who, who'd be in the mix there. So I, I think, you know, Gosman, we, we'd all agree is probably at the top, but, but Kikuchi is in the mix for you in terms of playoff consideration in that group with Barrios and Bassett. Absolutely, he is. And, and I think the way the rotation is set up right now, with Kikuchi uh, following um, Ryu, I think it's a great combination because they're so much dramatically different. And Ryu's all about finesse. And, you know, we, we must talk about him, too, because mm -hmm. uh, in his last two outings, he's thrown nine innings and given up just two hits. So he is uh, in great form coming back. That was just his third start of the season, but he really looks like he's in a good spot, too. And I like the fact that you have that finesse pitcher ahead of Kikuchi's power, and it could be a tough combination for hitters. When it comes to Hyunjin Ryu, Buck, I, I don't know how much you get to talk to him day to day, but that kind of, for lack of a better term, the art of pitching, you know, sticking to the edges and being more game plan and location and finesse over raw power, um, how fun is it for you to get to either pick the brain of a guy like that or just watch it start to start? Well, no, we, we chat from time to time and then talk about his ability to throw pitches inside the right-handed hitters, and that's always been a, a big formula for him, and last year he couldn't do it because he was hurt, and now he can drive that ball inside with the fastball and the cutter, and that sets up his changeup to the outer half of the plate very effectively, so he's pitching with a lot of confidence now. You know, when pitchers come back from Tommy John surgery, generally the last thing that comes into form for them is a command. But that's not been the case with Ryu at all. And he's always been a command guy, and he's picked it up right where he left off when he was in the prime of his career. So, Buck, with those five guys pitching as they are and all of these off days ahead, three off days in the next eight, uh, the Jays had a little bit of a crunch with that six-man rotation. They made the decision late last week to option Alec Manoa to AAA to continue to work on what he's working on and stay on regular rest. Uh, what did you make of that decision versus, you know, trying the six-man rotation a, l a little bit longer? No, well, they used that six-man rotation to get through those 17 straight mm -hmm. games, and, and it was a timely thing because, you know, you've got some guys that are a little bit older, a little bit more advanced in their career, and they could use the extra day's rest. But in talking with Chris Bassett the other day, he said, I feel best on the fourth day. And so, uh, you know, they're going to be happy to go back to that regular five-man rotation, and I think they're all going to perform well. Pete Walker's done a great job of keeping everybody as fresh as possible, and plus the fact that you're going to have Romano probably back tomorrow, Richards probably back for the Cincinnati series, 
and then the bullpen's going to get even deeper. So, you know, this team's in a real good spot right now as we uh, get to the middle of August and think about, uh, you know, great games down the stretch. I think the Blue Jays pitching staff especially is in good shape. It, they seem to be getting there, and it's going to make for some exciting ball down the stretch. Uh, also exciting, Buck, is Wednesday is the annual Jays Care Foundation auction. Uh, we don't have a ton of details on what's going up for auction yet, but I'm curious. Last year, one of the things that was auctioned was a fishing trip with you. How did that go? Uh, that was terrific. Um, we had a couple of gentlemen from uh, North Bay, Ontario, and we had a blast down in Key West. We caught fish for three days, had some great meals, told some great fishing stories, and uh, it was a, a great honor to be with those guys, and they were big supporters of Jay's Kid, that's for sure. Uh, that's great to hear, and people can check that out Wednesday on the broadcast, as we always can. Keep an eye out on social media for more details as well. Uh, Buck Martinez, thank you so much for taking the time out this morning. Great to be with you. You have a great day. Buck Martinez, one of the voices of the Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, if you watch any of the Jose Batista tributes over the weekend, Buck's voice uh, inseparable from those 2015 and 2016 seasons and playoff runs. Man, it was a lot of fun. Full disclosure, I was not at the game Saturday. Um but watching the pregame ceremonies on TV, seeing all the social media posts and things like that, seeing yesterday Jose Batista's family down in front of the mural that's at uh, Spadina and Adelaide here. It's it was a really cool weekend. I got a real kick too out of Jose Batista instead of speaking live, doing a pre-taped video package so that he would avoid crying. And then in the video package, he cries and coming out of the video package, he cries. Uh, it was really it was great to see a guy who you know, generally has kept it pretty tight to be overcome with the emotion and let that breathe and experience that a lot. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun. Sunday's offensive explosion, also a lot of fun. And we'll hope to see a little bit more of that moving forward than, than it being the once a week exception. This Phillies team is not going to be a team that is easy to hit off of with they're operating a six man rotation of their own right now. They have an off day today as well. That lets them reset and tinker with things. We originally thought we were going to see Michael Lorenzen fresh off of his no hitter, but because he threw 124 pitches in that one, they've shuffled things. Uh, we are going to see Zach Wheeler and Aaron Nola. So that's a pretty tough one there. Uh, Wheeler against Kikuchi Tuesday, Nola against Gosman on Wednesday. We'll talk to Matt Gelb a little later in the show of the athletic um, to, to get kind of the Phillies side of things. And they're a little bit Blue Jays NL. Uh, and what I mean by that is they've gotten as good a contribution as you could hope from a lot of the starting rotation. They've had some nice finds in the bullpen. They're one of the better pitching teams in baseball lately. And then you look at their lineup and you're like, man, this should be an elite offense. And they are 16th in weighted runs created. Plus they are 23rd hitting with runners in scoring position, which is one spot ahead of the Toronto blue Jays. Uh, you look at some of the names on there. Yes, there've been success stories. Uh, Bryson Stott looks like a, a real player who's coming into his own here, but you know, Bryce Harper has dealt with health issues and, uh, Trey Turner is having a down year offensively. Uh, Nick Cassianos maybe isn't having the, the year you expected for him. There are a lot of guys just a little below what you expect for them. And, while that is disappointing, if you are a Philadelphia Phillies fan or, or you had high hopes for that team, they also have this sense of, well, yeah, but what if some of those guys get hot at the right time? Or, or what if they find that that level they were at 
before. Now, you can't bank on that entirely, but the Phillies are in a stronger position than the Blue Jays when it comes to the standings because the National League is a little weaker. Um, the Jays actually have a, a better record than the Phillies, but the Phillies well insulated in that wild card spot uh, with a couple games there safely. They're not going to catch the Braves, so they can kind of focus on, hey, let's just lock in number one wild card spot and if you've heard a lot of the quotes from Canadian manager Rob Thompson as about the decision to go to a six-man rotation and stick with the six-man rotation here, uh, it's a lot about having that team ready to go in October and being the best version of themselves then. Now, you can't get into that mode already. Six weeks is enough time that you can lose your spot in the standings, but it is you know, one of the benefits of doing your work early. And yes, it's a national league versus American league thing. If the Jays were in that spot, they would have the same comfort level, but you play in the division and the league you play. in. so uh, some benefit to getting your work done now so that you can focus September on optimizing for October with things like a six man rotation or a deeper bullpen or what have you Jays have today off. They have Thursday off. They have next Monday off. So we'll get an idea of exactly how they want to use these extra off days. Uh, certainly, certainly, certainly the impact on the bullpen is going to be massive. Uh, getting some extra off days for guys there. It's also going to be pretty big for a couple of the regulars. Matt Chapman missed yesterday's game because he jammed his finger uh, between dumbbells on the weight rack, which I think we've all done before and had to miss a game for so that gives him a little extra time to get back Danny Jansen has been hit with 315 pitches in the last two weeks so he can rest up a little bit uh, as well Bo Bichette Buck mentioned he was on the broadcast with them yesterday he didn't really reveal much in, in terms of where his status is but he has run the bases and taken ground balls in addition to hitting in the cage and things like that so he's progressing he, he's day-to-day at this point, uh, Kevin Kiermeyer has been fielding and doing some throwing work. He, they're hopeful he only misses the minimum. Uh, Jordan Romano threw a rehab assignment on Saturday at AAA Buffalo. We're expecting him back tomorrow. And then Trevor Richards is only expected to miss the minimum amount of time as well. So if you look at all of those things, this is a Blue Jays team that not only is getting healthier, but you can use these off days to... You know, look, hey, if Matt Chapman and Danny Jansen and Boba needed one more day or Jordan Romano needed one more day, better that that come on an off day than a game day where you're operating with a, a slightly less than 100% lineup. I am operating at slightly less than 100% today, uh, which is why we're going to lean on you guys. Uh, mailbag in the next segment here. So text your questions or your comments into 590-590. What you liked from the Batista stuff on the weekend, what you liked about the offense yesterday or didn't like earlier on, you know, where is your confidence level in, in certain pitchers come a playoff series? A little early for that still, but you guys have the mic in the next segment. You can text your comments and questions to 590-590. Uh, we'll get to your mailbag stuff as Jay's Talk Plus continues on Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Discussing the biggest stories that matter to Toronto sports fans. The Fan Morning Show with Ailish Forfar and Justin Cuthbert. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. You can tell I'm at less than 100% because uh, I forgot to send in the music. I actually have, so Lance Kennedy, who handles the, the music as we're coming back for us, uh, I have an email open with everything written out, and I just never hit send on it this morning and forgot to put it in the doc. But good choice with a little Blink-182 first date. Um, 
Jays have a date with the Philadelphia Phillies. The rest of this is more evidence. I'm not at 100% that segue uh, there. Let me reset here. First of all, our pal Alex Wong of the Raptors show. His new book, Prehistoric, is now available for pre-order. That is a Raptors note. That is a basketball note here on a Blue Jays and baseball show. Uh, but Alex is, of course, a friend of the show. And uh, actually, I want to get him on at some point because he was just in Japan and Korea and checked out some baseball while he was there. So maybe we'll talk to him at some point, uh, hear a little bit more about Prehistoric, the book, but also a little bit about checking out some baseball overseas. He can also give us a ruling on uh, that one thing that one listener or viewer was really mad about one time. And so Alex wrote at one point that you can always wear a New York Yankees cap. It's not team specific. It is, it is past that into, you know, it's just a, a fashion thing. It's almost like a generic brand at, at that point. Um, I kind of think the LA Dodgers LA should qualify for that as well. I think I'm, I'm going to lose that argument, uh, but I like a Dodgers hat. I don't know what else to tell you. Uh, okay, so we're doing some, some mailbag stuff this segment. In the second hour, we're going to talk to John Morosi of MLB Network, who is actually literally on MLB Network right now. I can see him on my TV screen. Uh, we'll talk to him about uh, the Jays, his thoughts on Jose Batista, and, and as well as we'll do some MLB whip around stuff, uh, a big, big weekend uh, for teams on both sides of the league ledger. The Yankees having an absolute collapse yesterday. Uh, Shane McClanahan likely being shut down for the year, things like that. And then on the other side, uh, the Dodgers are the, hard, the hottest team in baseball. We talked to Alex Anthopoulos last week about the, the good position the Braves are in, and he certainly wasn't looking past or, or looking too far ahead to anything. And this is kind of why Dodgers have won eight in a row and suddenly look as good as anyone. We'll also talk to Matt Gelb of The Athletic. Uh, he covers the Philadelphia Phillies there. He's been all over not only the Lorenzen no-hitter, but their move to a six-man rotation here, why they're doing it, and how that's going to impact this series against the Toronto Blue Jays. So we did uh, put a call out for mailbag questions and comments. You can keep those coming to 590-590. Even if we don't get to them today, we'll sprinkle them in throughout the week, as we often do. Although, as always, I have to apologize to people who's I don't get to because I was going through last week's leftover ones. And yeah, a lot of them aren't, you know, time appropriate anymore. Uh, so I apologize if I don't get to yours, but thank you for keeping them coming. Let's start off in Edmonton. Mike in Edmonton asks, what are my thoughts on Nate Pearson's future with the Blue Jays? Uh, so, Look, Nate Pearson has had a, a rough go after a very, very strong start. That is not a secret. Even yesterday in mop-up work, uh, you know, a, a little bit of an issue. Getting He didn't allow a run, but a, a couple base runners in that ninth inning. The, the command is obviously eluding him right now. When he has gone down uh, to AAA, he's walking almost 20% of the batters he faces. So the one thing that had been really promising about his early season success with the Blue Jays that he wasn't walking guys anymore. That's kind of gone the other direction when he's gone back down to AAA to work on things. Now, he's also struck a boatload of people out at AAA. So maybe there's something to just figuring out that trade-off. Um, I, I think, look, a couple things are, are pretty obvious at this point with Nate Pearson. I, I think the idea of him being a starter has probably passed us by. He started one game in 2022 on a rehab assignment that wasn't even, I mean, he went two and two thirds innings in it, but really that was 
a rehab assignment. You throw the guy out there first until he's out of pitches and then move on. He was starting semi-regularly in 2021, but with short stints. I don't believe he'd gone over three innings since 2020. I think you have to go back to to the last time he threw over three innings. So I think the idea of Nate Pearson transitioning back into a starter role at any point is probably a little behind us. If you're looking at things like innings build up and things like that, he's only at 52 for this season as well. So um, it, it's hard to imagine going back that route, especially if the the command issues persist. That's something that's probably easier to figure out in a starter's role or sorry, in a relief role rather. So that is probably where I'm at on starter versus reliever with Nate Pearson on the other side though. He's about to turn 27. He's got multiple minor league options and he makes the league minimum. He's going to be an option in this bullpen for a couple of years still. I, I don't, I think things would have to go pretty awry for the Blue Jays to cut bait on him entirely and look at DFAing him or something like that. Um, yes, the ERA is 518 and that is pretty unsightly, but also the stuff is the stuff. And when you're a 26 year old with options and controllability, you're going to get a, a lot of op- opportunities to figure things out. So I'd imagine he's someone who comes in next year and we're talking about him as one of the bullpen options and he's fighting for a spot because he's got minor league options still. That's not what anyone hoped for for Nate Pearson back in you know 2018 and things like that. But that's where we're at with him and that I think is a, a realistic way to look at his near-term future. Eddie and Fort Erie asks, uh, do you think when Bo comes back for the Reds or Orioles series, the Jays will put him in the cleanup spot? Eddie, I do not. I think they will put him back where he was sitting before in the two spot. And look, I've talked about this a little bit on this show before. Batting order optimization on a statistical level, like game to game doesn't make a huge difference. So if you Think about things like, well, our guy's comfortable hitting here, or we want the lineup stability and these three guys play every day, or whatever. We want Vlad having someone hit in front of him who sees a ton of pitches. Whatever the case may be, you can get there with lineup optimization, or sorry, you can get there with constructing a batting order that isn't completely optimized, and I would understand it. The one thing that kind of rules over everything, though, when it comes to choosing your batting order, and this is why the kind of Vogue thing has been, well, hit your best player second. There is a big plate appearance drop-off over the course of the season with every spot in the order you drop a guy. And yes, a cleanup spot is still an important position. Bo's been your best guy hitting with runners in scoring position. Um, There is an argument for that. However, Bo has also been, period, your best hitter. And you want that guy up to the plate as many times as possible. If even over the last six weeks of the season, if that means five or six extra plate appearances for Bo hitting in the two hole versus hitting in the four hole, you want those five or six extra plate appearances. That probably matters more than the sequencing uh, of, you know, hey, let's get a guy who drives it in a little bit more on the four spot, but also a lot of the time he's probably leading off the second inning with nobody on base and things like that. Um, I would lean toward putting Bo back in the two spot. By the way, I was looking at some leaderboards yesterday. Um, despite this absence, Bo Bichette still a huge lead in the American League hits race. So uh, it looks likely that barring a setback or, or a slump that Bo's in a good position to continue uh, his trek to be uh, the American League hit leader three years in a row. So it's nice that this absence hasn't hurt him there. It'll be interesting to see when exactly the Jays pull the trigger on bringing him back, but all reports pretty good over the weekend. So when Bo comes back, and this is uh, something we have a couple of questions about, 
there is going to be a bit of a roster crunch. Someone's got to go. So someone who didn't sign theirs uh, said, asked if David Schneider should play over Santiago Espinal. Um, there were also some questions. Ed and Aurelia asked last week who the odd man out is. Um, Jay's retro from St. Thomas, uh, St. Thomas, shout out to St. Thomas. What a, what a tremendous little town. Uh, he asked uh, David Schneider's campaign seems to have the momentum of a runaway freight train. What makes him so popular? Uh, terrific Simpsons reference. Um, look, obviously David Schneider has cooled off a little bit here. I think we're starting to see that. Yes. Uh, high velocity is something that's going to challenge him a little bit, whether that's due to a mechanical thing, a size thing, or, what I think is probably the likeliest culprit is there is the automated balls and strike system in AAA for a couple of days a week. And then the challenge system, the other couple of days of the week. And David Schneider is the king of navigating that well. And what we've seen is the strike zone that the automated system calls is much smaller than the strike zone that major league umpires call. And perhaps if you're a shorter hitter like David Schneider, that is a particular area where letter of the law, computer versus umpire, um, you're going to have to deal with high pitches, those pitches that are just kind of on the edge, upper edge of the zone a little differently. And that's going to be a challenge for him. Uh, was nice to see on Saturday. He had a double there to kind of break out of that minor hitless skid. He had gone three games without one. So still taking walks, which is, which is great too. Um, I, I think they've been quality plate appearances other than the swing and miss stuff high in the zone. I think what this is going to come down to, if let, let's say he gets in a couple more games and he's he's fine, but not opening weekend of David Schneider fine. I think what this could come down to is the decision of, well, if Bo Bichette is back and someone is losing playing time, would you rather have Santiago Espinal only playing two days a week or would you rather have David Schneider only playing two days a week? I think developmentally, you would rather have David Schneider go down to AAA and play every day. However, you're also in a playoff race. And David Schneider has been, you know, obviously a tiny sample here. But even if you look at AAA, he's been better than Santiago Espinal. Um, personally, if I were Santiago Espinal, I, I'd probably be looking over my shoulder a little bit when Bo Bichette comes back because Paul DeYoung is here now as well to, to be the backup shortstop. Uh, but Santiago Espinal starting to hit a little bit at the right time. Uh, he's got four hits over his last three appearances uh including a double and three rbi in that stretch so if he is feeling it he's he's channeling it uh the right way maddie from parts unknown asks who are you most confident will return to the jays next season kiermeyer merrifield or chapman that's a very good question and one we'll probably talk a lot about um in the offseason i would say right this second whit merrifield um, I think Matt Chapman is, you know, you look at any of the league wide people who do their free agent rankings and things like that. Matt Chapman's number two on most boards after Shohei Otani. He's going to get a lot of money. The Blue Jays, yes, have some money coming off the books this year with Ryu's contract up and Matt Chapman and Whit Merrifield and Kevin Kiermaier and Brandon Bell. Uh, there is some flexibility. Absolutely. They also happen to have a number of prospects who play third base and maybe they're not ready quite yet. But when you're looking at well, would it make sense to give Matt Chapman $25, $30 million or spend that money elsewhere and try to shore up, you know, the third base situation with some combination of Schneider, Barger, and Arelvis Martinez? I don't know. Maybe you can get there that way. Whit Merrifield is probably the wrong answer just in that all those guys can also play second base, specifically David Schneider and Addison Barger. But Merrifield's positional flexibility is an important piece. I don't think, I think he's probably the guy of, of that group you can get on 
the team friendliest deal. Um, the fact that he also has a mutual option, I don't think that matters for the option actually being picked up. It's hard to see a scenario where both sides would want to pick up that option. But I do think having that as a baseline gives you some room to, um, you know, come to a, a deal based around that. Hey, we're going to decline this, but let's work out a multi-year at a lower annual value, um, something like that. So that that's where I'd lean right now. It's it's hard to see Chapman coming back at the prices that he's probably going to come back, but he has been tremendous. It's been uh, it, it's it's hard to deny that Matt Chapman's been really really good for this team, especially defensively. But you know, at the top of the league, like we talked with Robert Orr of Baseball Prospectus about on Friday, at the top of the league in pretty much every hard hit metric, uh, you would think from the underlying batted ball stuff that even better days are ahead offensively, still mashing lefties. So that would be a tough one, but. The economics of free agency are what they are. Simon and Shelburne asks, Blake, what do you think can be done about the ground rule, double rule? Should it be changed to take into consideration where the trail runner is in situations like Saturday? Bishop was already around third when the ball goes over. Um, yeah, I, I think the, the one scenario that I see that potentially being a problem is ground rule doubles where a fan has a play on it. And then you get into, well, would it have gone over if not things like that? But I think generally it's a situation where, yeah, the, the letter of the law no longer keeps up with the aggressiveness of major league base running. And what I mean by that is the guy from first scores pretty often on a double. So uh, if we look around the league at how often uh, a runner advances an extra base. Now, this includes going first to third on a single and things like that. But 43% of the time, a hitter will be able to take that extra base, uh, go first to third, go second to home on a single or, or first to home on a double. So we can also look at how often specifically a runner scores in those situations. Now we could break this down by batted ball and things like that. Um, that is a, a study, a, a deeper look for another time, but probably worth keeping that 43% number in your head. Maybe if that was North of 50, you'd have enough evidence to be like, see, uh, but as long as that's under 50, maybe they, they just don't want to change the rule. I, I think you're right that where the runner is should have a factor um, because look, guys are in motion a lot of the time. You know, think of a scenario where a guy's stealing a base and that happens. Um, yeah, it's a it's a tough one. Can't do anything about the one Saturday, but I do think it's something that uh, warrants maybe taking a closer look at, at the underlying numbers for. Um, Kevin from Toronto, a follow up on that Chapman question. Uh, this front office clearly believes heavily in defense and run prevention. If they let Chapman walk and use internal options to compete for the spot, uh, there's no guarantee any of them can replace his bat at a key position. I think Chapman has to be re-signed. Look, Anna, if if we were talking rolling one-year deals, that absolutely is true. Uh, there's no way around that. But you have to consider that Matt Chapman's going to get probably five years, and he's already 30 years old, and you can't pay everyone long-term and your core guys are getting more expensive. So um, I'm with you. I, I think losing Matt Chapman unquestionably makes your team worse and you're in a win now window. So if you can find your way to something, hey, make it happen. Maybe one of those prospects become a trade chip to to address a different position or something like that. But I my guess is that this front office would look at the term Matt Chapman is going to be looking for, how third base defense ages into the 30s. Not everyone is Scott Rowland, although I would, if there were anyone in baseball, I would bet to age gracefully as a defensive third baseman. Matt Chapman's probably right there with Nolan Arenado. 
So tough decision uh, to be sure. Joe in North York asks another follow-up here. Uh, why does it seem to be a foregone conclusion that Whit Merrifield won't be back next year? Uh, he explains a little bit more there. Uh, so Joe, to your point, I don't think they'll pick up the $18 million option. I think it's much more likely that both sides decline that and worked out something multi-year at a lower annual value or something like that. But I don't think it's a foregone conclusion that he's gone. I, I think this team has liked what he's brought. He's obviously played his way into you know, more money than we would have anticipated when he was first acquired from the Kansas city Royals. So I think, yeah, that, that's going to be uh, a real discussion there because, you know, look, belt Kiermaier, Chapman, Merrifield, not all of those guys are back, but it wouldn't surprise me if, if one, maybe even two of them are back. And like I said earlier, I think, I think Merrifield makes, makes sense for a, a couple different reasons there. Not the least of which is you could probably get him on a shorter term deal than, than you could get say a Matt Chapman. Brian in Toronto asks if I see Ryu having a future as a Blue Jay. He's a Boris client likely hitting the market. What kind of deal do I think is possible for him? Uh, what kind of deal I think is possible for him? I, I really don't know. Uh, I don't mean to cop out the answer, but show me the list of pitchers who came back from Tommy John at 36 were really good down the stretch of a season, but don't have high velocity or big strikeout numbers. The list is pretty small. Um, now look, Innings are innings, and everyone loves Hyunjin Ryu. I think there would be suitors for him, certainly, all around baseball. Um, whether the Blue Jays decide to do that versus run it back with giving Alec Manoa a shot, because they do have Bassett, Gosman, Barrios, Manoa, and Kikuchi all under contract for next year. So um, could get a little could get a little tight there. Obviously, you always need additional starting pitching depth, but none of those guys except Manoa could be sent down to the minors. So that's uh, it, it's a tough one to figure at this point in time. I think, look, if Hyunjin Ryu looks like he's looked over these last couple starts, the rest of the way here, even if it's as a five and dive guy, he's going to have suitors because uh, everyone loves that guy. The command obviously hasn't gone anywhere and starting pitchers get paid as long as their arms are still attached. Wasim from Toronto asks, what do I think about Edwin as a special advisor being in the dugout in uniform, presumably providing hitting advice? I thought it was cool. I thought it was like a nice part of, of the weekend. I think everyone, you know, Edwin is as much a part of those teams as Jose Batista was, and he's been doing instructional work. I, we've seen him at Rogers Center a couple times throughout the year. Um, I don't really know what goes into Major League Baseball's decision to say yes or no to uh, requests like that for a guy to be in uniform in the dugout. But I don't think, look, there's a certain point at which too many cooks in the kitchen, too many voices or something like that. But as Bo Bichette said on the broadcast yesterday, and this was more about hitters talking to each other and getting to pick Shohei Otani's brain or something like that. But I think this is true of coaches too, is there are a lot of different ways to hit and guys over the history of baseball have been successful in a lot of different ways. It's entirely possible that three coaches are going to look at what you're doing, say something, suggest something, and it doesn't work for you. And then the fourth one does. You don't want those four guys all arguing and telling you conflicting stuff, but I don't think it's ever a bad thing to have more good hitters around this part of why they want Victor Martinez around, why they let Vlad's uncle come around at some point, um, you know, extra eyes, extra ways to communicate extra experiences. I, I think those are positive as long as there's a clear delineation of, you know, who the hitting coach is and that there aren't too many conflicting things going on. Jason from Markham says uh, he thought the Jays did a fantastic job on Saturday. What struck me was how this team might be different if John Gibbons uh, never left. 
uh, that he'd bring the edge we lack. I, I don't know about that. I mean, I, I've always loved Gibby. Obviously, he's been on the show a couple of times before, so uh, that's not a that's not not a factor here as well. Um, you know, I haven't gotten to know John Schneider as well, but I don't know that this team. I don't know if it's an edge necessarily this team's lacking or if it is an edge that that comes from the manager's chair because you look back to those 2015 2016 teams uh yeah that edge was coming from Jose Batista and Josh Donaldson and Troy Tulowitzki and I mean even once in a while guys like Danny Valencia um the not Danny Palencia who pitched on the weekend by the way um yeah that came from the guys in that dugout first I, I think John Gibbons was very good one of his biggest skills as a manager over the years was understanding the tone of the room and when to do stuff and say stuff and when not to. And when you have big personalities who are lead by energy, lead by example, lead by that sort of toughness or whatever you want to call it, having guys like Batista, Tulowitzki, Donaldson, Russell Martin, having those guys around probably, you know, John Gibbons primary role is probably let those guys cook and know when to, help them pull back or when to help them push forward. Not that he wasn't doing any, obviously he's still managing the team, but I think that level of toughness or, or however you want to classify it uh, was probably a player first thing. Still a few more questions that we'll get to. We'll sprinkle them in after John Morosi before we talk to Matt Gelb in the second hour, as you could probably hear, uh, my voice could use a little bit of a, a break right now. We'll see how uh, this show all week, and uh, I'm on the broadcast with Ben Schulman for the Philly series and the Red series. Um, keep the keep the tea coming is how we're going to operate here. Um, again, uh, just uh, I mentioned it a little earlier that our pal Alex Wong, uh, you know him from the Raptor show, and just generally his uh, his new book Prehistoric is out for pre order. Um, so you could check out the Raptor show banter pods that they're doing during the off season in the, the Raptor show with William Lou podcast feed uh, for more about that surely in the coming days. And we'll try to get Alex on a little later this week to talk some baseball in addition to uh, prehistoric as well. Right now though, we're going to take a break. John Morosi of MLB network joins us on the other side. We'll see what he thought of Jose Batista's uh, induction to the level of excellence. And we'll whip around baseball from a real busy weekend. Uh, John Morosi next on Jay's talk plus on the Sportsnet radio network and sports at Diving deep into Leafs, Raptors, Jays, and NFL. The J.D. Bunkins Podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jays Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Uh, what a day to be on the basketball side of things. Uh, if you think the if you think things are going well in Philly sports because the Philadelphia Phillies are coming into Toronto hot, uh, don't look across to the basketball team. It's a mess. James Harden calling the GM a liar and saying he will never be a part of an organization that Daryl Morey is a part of. Uh, MLB probably doesn't want to go that far in terms of hey, we want a twelve month news cycle. We want buzzy player movement in the off season. We want the Shohei chase. To be big news, you probably don't want to go as far as players calling their GMs uh, liars and uh, as they continue to try to navigate a trade there. Now, look, there is a lot of a lot to suggest there that uh, Daryl Morey has not handled that situation honestly um, and in a, a player friendly way. But it's not the kind of mess I don't think you want here in the middle of August when trade season has uh, has cooled down. 
we won't be talking MLB transactions for uh, a couple of months, though. John Morosi of MLB Network is going to join us in a minute here, but he's got all sorts of takes around what's going on in baseball right now. Uh, to give you a, a little bit of a whip around, it was a really busy weekend in baseball. The Jays go one and two. They're now eight games back in the division because the Baltimore Orioles won a couple in a row, including one yesterday in dramatic fashion. Cedric Mullins robbing a home run and hitting a home run. Tampa Bay sputtering along a, a little bit still. The Jays are five games back of them for that top wildcard spot. If that's something that you'd also like to keep in your crosshairs as we go through the final parts of the season here, uh, the Yankees blew a five run lead to the Miami Marlins yesterday. They are five games back of the blue Jays now sitting in last in the AL East and Seattle um, was looking good for a minute. They dropped games Saturday and Sunday. Uh, they've still won eight of the last 10 which some quick math tells you they'd won eight in a row before that. Uh, they're a game and a half back over in the NL. It is, it's been presumed for a while that the Braves will lock up the top seed there. The Dodgers still three and a half back of it, but they've won eight in a row. And I think if you're the Braves, you're not as worried about the top seed as you are that the Dodgers may be peaked at the right time here or getting ready to peak at the right time. Even if some of their trade deadline acquisitions have underwhelmed or already hit the aisle in the case of, of Joe Kelly. That wild card race over in the NL is pretty spicy as well. And we highlight it because the Jays are about to play two of those teams and just played one. So Philly has that top wild card spot. Uh, they have a, a three game cushion right now, but that is not big enough to be completely comfortable. These games matter a lot to the Phillies. Uh, we'll see the Reds on the weekend who are still four games over 500, despite having been outscored dramatically on the season, they're a half game out of that wild card spot, as are the Cubs. Uh, both of those teams also chasing Milwaukee in the NL Central. So these games on the weekend will be huge for a Reds team that has really come back down to earth over the last month or so. That doesn't mean they're not fun, just means they're uh, going through some growing pains with that young group there. Although a uh, big win for them yesterday to kind of get back on the right footing. Uh, looking ahead to this week around baseball. So the Orioles, if you are keeping an eye on them still, if you're saying, Hey, eight games, isn't too far away. We should probably still keep an eye on that. They've got the Padres who good luck figuring those guys out. I don't know. They're five and a half out of a wild card. They keep winning a bunch and then losing a bunch. Uh, they're still six games under 500 and it still feels day to day. Like maybe they could go on a run here. If you're thinking of teams that got really hot in the stretch run of a season and, you know, change their playoff outlook, one of the teams that probably comes to mind, sure, more recently, the Phillies last year, but uh, that 2015 Blue Jays team that was hanging around at 500, about 100 games in the season, added a bunch of guys, went on a huge run, had some dramatic, dramatic playoff moments. That 2015 team was immortalized this weekend as Jose Batista went into the Blue Jays' level of excellence. John Morosi of MLB Network joins us now. John, good morning. How are you? Outstanding, Blake. Yeah, a great weekend there. Congratulations to Jose and his family. Uh, obviously, the Jays, a huge win for them yesterday, but uh, a weekend of, of great baseball befitting a special team back in 2015. We got to make sure you, you get down to the mural. I don't know if you saw any pictures of it, but there is now a I Jose saw. Batista mural downtown. I love it. And, and that was just beautifully done. Uh, full credit to the amazing artist uh, who did a great job with that, with that mural. And, and just an iconic moment. I mean, that, that is a moment uh, you think about the, the pantheon of uh, great Toronto sports moments that that's going to be there for all time. Just what, 
what that swing and that moment represented. It was funny. I was actually covering the other ALDS um, for Fox that year, which was between Houston and Kansas City. And I was in Kansas City watching that game on a monitor at the, the Kauffman Stadium press box. And just the reaction that went up in the uh, in the press box, even like, oh my gosh, look at that ball go! And then the celebration. I'll just, I'll never forget where I was standing when that when all that happened. So, John, this is something that's been interesting to kind of play with uh, this weekend with Jose Batista going up into the level of excellence. Obviously, he he is more than the 2015-2016 teams. He has the franchise record for home runs. His 2010 and 2011 were were incredible and really changed the direction of the franchise, but those 2015 and 2016 teams, especially 2015, I feel like here we remember that team almost like it was a championship team. And I know that they didn't win a title that the peak of that group was fairly short with just two years. Um, do you think that's kind of a thing that's unique to baseball? The, the way that te- certain teams stand out to us, even if they weren't championship teams. Yes. Uh, and I, I would say a couple that stand out to me, the, the, the Mariners of Oh one, the Mariners of 95, those, those two teams did not win a championship or even reach the World Series and are still very fondly remembered in, in Seattle, for example. I know in Detroit in 2006 when that team made it back to the World Series and, and it was this spirit of renewal for the game. Um, and I think that the Toronto team in 15 is the same way because for me, it, that year in Toronto was when it felt like all of Canada fell back in love with baseball. And obviously Canada's always loved baseball, but that year was special. And, and there, that was the first postseason appearance, as you know, uh, since the early nineties. And, and, and it, was, it was a generational moment where I think people that had followed baseball in Toronto previous to that had their memories of, of 93 and, and 92 and what, what that, those years were like. And even the eighties and the great pennant races in, in 85, but it was almost as though that generation of of fans of the 80s and early 90s looked at then this younger group of fans that were falling in love with this team, uh, and and there was a certain pride almost as as one generation does to the next, whether it's a son or daughter, niece or nephew. You look and say, "Wow, it's it's so cool to see that love of the game sparkle in the eyes of a young person." And, and in my experience, anecdotally. In recent years, Toronto has always had a really young and really engaged crowd, and I think that was the year that we really realized that, like, wow, this is, for, for baseball, as, as the game has sort of thought about ways to modernize and reach a younger demographic uh, and a diverse demographic, it was there at Rogers Center. And I remember just telling people in the States, like, you talk about the game and, and how for a long time the narrative was about the, the older generation and older fan base. I said, that's not the case in Toronto. Go to a game there. Listen to the crowd. Look at the crowd. You see this passion and diversity among the fan group there that I know Toronto as a city is really proud of, and I know Canada as a country is really proud of. And I think that's something that I've always tried to convey to American baseball people that that Toronto's getting it. And I think that the start of Toronto really getting it in a profound way was that 15 team because, and I think that's why it's so fondly remembered because of how much civic and national pride was wrapped up in that team. And look, that's something Jose Batista spoke about this weekend as well. The the not realizing, you know, knowing Toronto's reputation, but not feeling that Toronto reputation as a multicultural city, as a, you know, young vibey city for around baseball until you got here and got immersed in it. Um, what I wonder too, John, the legacy of the bat flip itself, obviously Jose Batista was not the very first person to bat flip, but I do feel like that is 
the biggest kind of cultural touch point for flipping bats or celebrating home runs and things like that, just in how much it got talked about and dissected with the the fight the next year and everything like that. Um, we have seen in the years since baseball embrace that a little bit more. Some people embracing it, you know, kind of kicking and screaming on the way, but a lot of people really starting to, you know, suggest, Hey, look, baseball should be fun. It should be competitive. And and if you let that out in a big, big moment, that's okay. And that's part of the fun. Um, do you see Jose Batista having an impact in that way as well? Especially when you look at some of the younger players coming up. Certainly. And that to me was a, was a cultural moment uh, in our game without a doubt. And it certainly sparked a lot of conversation. How for me, my, my opinion then and now was, how can you look at that moment and look at the reaction of the crowd and everything that was going on, the, the cameras shaking and say, well, that, that bat flip was out of place. I mean, how, how could you possibly <laughs> conclude that? Um, th- this is a fun sport. This is show business. I, I, I try to always remind people of this. This, this is not, this is not parliament. This is not Congress. This is not wall street. This is fun. The, the reason why we do this is because it's fun. And I think that it's important that, that we remember that and not lose sight of it, not take ourselves too seriously because of what sports represents at their best. And I think th- there is, you'd have to be a real <laughs> negative person, I think, to look at that moment and say, ah, not for me. Nope, nope, nothing, nothing fun there. I mean, that was just amazing. And, and I think that it, it really helped give those of us who – support uh who are supportive of emotion in sports i mean what a novel concept um that 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 gave us i think a lot of firmness to kind of stand on and say listen like look at this and you you mean to tell me that you don't like this are you not entertained by this uh and so i think it was um one of those flash points and look i mean jose had an amazing career and it wasn't just obviously a lot of it was with the jays but his story in general, having to, to remake his swing and, and understand what he was doing as a ball player and, and, and the, the, the revelation of the 50 homer season was great. How seriously he took it to represent the Dominican Republic, whether it was World Baseball Classic, Olympics, um, how he tried to extend his career as long as he could. Um, I, I think there were a lot of really important notes in his career that, that showed that there was something in Jose Bautista's career for everybody. And, and there's a reason why I think I remember just, you know, talking on this network for a lot of years when he was a free agent and there was such passion for fans for him. And I think it was because he helped this franchise go from one that was a bit of an afterthought in the American league East to one that was front and center in major league baseball. And, and when you have a player that, that takes you from, somewhat obscurity, at least in baseball circles and the way that the franchise was regarded to being a, a preeminent franchise, there's, there's nothing that replaces that person in the, in the franchise's history. And so um, he, he really brought this team into a, a, a new level of competitiveness. And I, I think that's why he is so special and why uh, he is a very significant person. I think it's, for me, that's why you, know, you, you take everybody's, Cooperstown case and, and deal with that in a separate separate conversation. The, the reality is the level of excellence, at least as I understand it and would, would put it in context, is for those who have an indelible mark on the history of the franchise. That if you were going to write a, a page about Jay's history from roundabout 2010 
until 17 or 18. Uh, how important is this person to that story? And the, the reality is you cannot write that without mentioning Bautista's name a bunch of times. And that's why the level of excellence is just perfect, a uh, perfect way to honor his contributions. I agree with that. I think that's very well said, John. I appreciate the note about representing the Dominican Republic as well, because seeing him and Edwin together, that's obviously something that that comes front of mind there as well. So we have this great weekend. We're celebrating 2015 and 2016. Yeah, the Jays were in the playoffs last year and kind of in the the sham of a playoffs from 2020, but it really did just set up for me. It, it would be, you know, this city and this fan base, the new renovations at Rogers center honoring Jose Batista. It does feel like everything here is ready for another fun playoff run. If the blue Jays can just figure it out, they are still in the third wild card spot. So it's not as if they're, you know, they've played poorly enough to fall out of playoff consideration but the Mariners are only a game and a half back they they've continued struggling to score runs when you look at this Blue Jays team um, what is your opinion of where they are right now and the possibility for them to hey maybe it's not Jose Batista led and bat flip and things like that but more than you know a one and done in the playoffs like last year was the stars have to be stars, mm-hmm. and that's that's where I'm at with them. The, the stars have to be stars. Vladdy is going to have to um, carry this team for a week, for 10 days, whether it's in the regular season or, or to get them uh, through a round in the playoffs. Um, this team, I think, needs, and, and one of their issues at times has been situational hitting, the ability to, to cash in on opportunities. I, I think for me, when we talk about what is the prototypical – series that explains the 2023 Blue Jays, it was that four-gamer against the Guardians last week. You go 2-2, two and two and your losses are by scores of one nothing and 4-3. I mean, that, that you very easily should have won that series. You very easily could have swept it. But And certainly the wins were also low-scoring, by the way. It's not as though the Guardians <laughs> were getting outmatched the other ones. The wins were 3-1 and one nothing, and the losses were one nothing and 4-3. So it, it was a tight series. That tells me that the pitching is good enough that even against a quality team in Cleveland in a hitter-friendly ballpark, they can put up zeros, which they did. But the lineup, especially without Bo, is, is still lacking. Now, certainly yesterday was a, was a big outburst, and Varsho was there. Um, you, but you look and compare. Like I, I'm in Atlanta today. Our, our showcase game on MLB Network is the Braves and the Yankees. You look at the Braves lineup. That's a lineup. <laughs> and and the Jays have, depending on the day, maybe two or three players that the opposition is scared of. And, and Atlanta's got like eight. And that's the difference between a team that, that is going to have to fight to the very end to make it and one that is a legitimate World Series team. The Jays, as they sit right now, have not shown me that they are a legitimate World Series contender. They might become one. Certainly, I would leave that possibility open. But they have not shown me yet, over a long sweep of time, that they can play and and score big runs against high-level competition for a month. And that's what it takes to win a championship. I, I haven't seen that from them yet. Um, and that's that's where I'm at. I think the pitching is is really good. Uh, and even over the weekend, the, the games they lost to the Cubs were close, very you know reasonable, low-scoring games that, that just tell you that, again, the pitching is going to be adequate. But this team offensively is just not 
is just not good enough and deep enough yet, yet to be able to play against high level competition and win consistently for weeks at a time, win series after series after series, which is what you have to do. And obviously, unless you come back and win the division, which is at this point, probably unlikely, you're going to have to play a wild card round and a division series and an LCS to get through and to get, to get to the world series. So um, I'm just, I'm watching, waiting for a sign that tells me that they can compete with the very best in this in, in this league, and I haven't quite seen that yet. Uh, John, when it comes to that pitching staff, you're, you're right. They have done their part. They've kept them in a lot of games and allowed this team to be in a wildcard spot without the hitters really coming through. Um, obviously, a part of that is that once everyone gets healthy, there there's an odd man out. And Alec Manoa, it was determined, is the odd man out after they're done that that stretch of six-man rotation, he's been optioned to AAA. He got five or six starts there to, to try to get it right after his initial demotion. Um, what did you make a, of the Blue Jays' decision to say, hey, look, the, the Alec Manoa thing, long-term, you're still invested, obviously, but right now he's got to go down to AAA, and they've got to roll with the five guys, giving them the best chance at the major league level. Too many walks and too many pitches. Mm-hmm. That's as simple as that for me. Uh, you know, I, I think you can live with your fifth starter – sometimes having a lot of traffic on the bases and giving you five innings more often than not. But uh, if you look at his last five outings, it was three innings against the Padres. There was a four and a third outing against the angels. And I think the guardians outing told you a lot. It was 93 pitches to get 12 outs. You just, you can't do that. I mean, that's, it's not efficient enough. There's still, I think what he did coming back, he, he showed enough that that indicated that there is still something in there that he's going to be able to be a successful major league pitcher. He has not, he has not completely lost it, but he has also not completely gotten it back. And, and so there is a time for patience. There is a time for letting him figure it out. I think the Jays gave him more than enough time, uh, especially after the all-star break to, okay, here's, Five starts after the break, what do you got? And, and what can you do? And there was certainly the one quality outing against against Boston. But, you know, I, I, I go with my mentor, John Lowe, and his, the, the quality start stat, how many times do you get six innings or more with three innings or fewer or three runs or fewer? And then the last five starts, he did it once. And that's just not enough, uh, I think, at, at the moment for them to be able to rely on. So the reality is the Jays have better options. Right now in the rotation with the return of Ryu and the way that Kikuchi is pitched. And then in the bullpen, when you've got someone that walks guys at this rate, I mean, his, his walk rate is walking 6.1 per nine. You just, it's too many walks, too many walks and too many pitches. You just, you can't, uh, at this point, you, you cannot trust him in that spot. So I believe it's still in there. I believe he'll find a way. I believe he's still going to be a good major league pitcher just not right now. And I think there's, there's going to have to be a, a probably a, a really substantial reboot in terms of everything in the off season, how, uh, how he trains, how he prepares all those things. It's really hard to, to do that at mid season and make a whole bunch of changes. I think that he did a very admirable job of it. He's just not right now, one of their best five starting pitchers, and he's not throwing enough strikes to be one of their best seven relievers. And that's, I think the reality of where he's at right now. I think that's that's well said, John. And like you said, long term, you're you're not, you know, you're not throwing it away. But 
right now they've got a they've got a playoff uh, a playoff thing to be focused on here. Um, John, you mentioned you're down in Atlanta for tonight's showcase game on MLB Network. Uh, do you? Now, look, the Atlanta Braves have been so far ahead in the National League for so long that they can pretty firmly focus on, hey, let's let's do what the Atlanta Braves need to do and let's make sure we get to October in the best possible way, best shape, rotation rested, guys coming back, all of those things. However, they're, the team that we would perceive to be their biggest competition in the National League, the Los Angeles Dodgers, have become the hottest team in baseball right now. Um, what do you make of the dynamic between those two teams and have the Dodgers in your mind post-deadline and with some of the things that have started to click in place? You know, Is that more of a 1A, 1B right now than, than it was earlier in the season for you? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I think... You know, tonight's game is going to be really interesting for a number of reasons. I, I think watching Max Fried pitch uh, against still what can be a good Yankee lineup. Obviously, they haven't produced, but they still have Aaron Judge. They'll get DJ LeMahieu back tonight. So there's it'll be a good test for Fried, in my opinion. And and so the question I've got on the Braves is rotation wise, when you when you roll them out there in the postseason, can Fried dominate? a playoff game for seven or eight innings can does Morton still have uh, the, the, the durability as, as an older pitcher to do that for a full month all the way through the world series. So I, I think that the Braves to me, they're still the gold standard in, in the national league. Um, they, their, their everyday position player group is elite in terms of how many games they play, how durable they are. They go to the post every day. We talk about that a lot with this team, and it's it's there's a reason why. It's just it's so exceptional what they do. So I, I think they are the standard, but the the Dodgers are closing in. Uh, Betts and Freeman are their superstars. They're very unselfish in the way they played. Dave Roberts, I spoke with him a week ago today. We had a game in San Diego, and I was talking to Dave about just how unselfish Freddie and Mookie are, and just what that means for the whole organization. They also got Clayton Kershaw back. They also believe they're going to get Walker Buehler back. So it's it's so interesting, Blake, because I can't recall a year in which we were talking about a league where, and it, this probably it's probably happened a couple times in the last decade, but where we said, wow, if the LCS matchup is not this team versus this team, something extraordinary happened. And that's, I think that's where we're at in the National League. It's, it's the Braves and Dodgers and then a gap and then everybody else. And uh, certainly upsets can happen. Uh, the Brewers are a team that I always look at because of how hot they are in the. It seems like down the stretch and the way Craig Council always gets the most out of his teams late in the season. The Phillies, to your point earlier, what they did in the second half last year, you know, they knocked the Braves out of the playoffs. So uh, it can certainly happen, but I, I see these two teams as being clearly the, the two best teams, and they might they might even be the two best teams in all of baseball in terms of just their their balance and and the postseason readiness and and how much. October know-how there is with this group. You know, Baltimore is a, a bit of an October unknown. Texas is a bit of an October unknown. There's a lot of really quality teams in the American League. We just don't know quite as much about them relative to what we've seen in the in the fall from from the Braves and Dodgers a whole lot in the last 
five, six, seven years. You mentioned the just how much top-end talent there is for both of those teams. You can look at, you know, if we use Fangraph's wins above replacement, you look at the National League on the position player side, and it's Atlanta, Dodgers, Dodgers, Atlanta in Acuna, um, Freeman, Betts, and, and then Matt Olson. Uh, before I let you go, John, Matt Olson, the season he's putting together, already 43 home runs, 107 RBI, uh, leading the league in, in both of those categories um, by a, a pretty healthy margin. I, I know he's not even the MVP on his own team because of Ronald Acuna Jr. And, and everything he's doing that's so special this year. But do you feel like Matt Olson, just how good a season he's had, has gone under the radar a little bit? Yes, because he plays every day and he's already got 43 homers. Uh, and interestingly, uh, this is now game 118 for the Braves tonight. And, uh, and he's at 43 homers. And Aaron Judge last year was at 46 through the Yankees game number 122. Hmm. So if, if Olsen can homer a couple times this week, he'll basically be right in lockstep with where Judge was at this time last year, which is amazing to think about. So uh, it's interesting, though. Bill Ladson, my friend and colleague at MLB.com, did a, a Q&A with Matt Olson recently, and obviously he's an amazing story. He went to high school about 20 miles away from where I'm sitting right now in Atlanta, and, and – uh, Bill asked Matt Olson, hey, if you had to vote for the MVP right now uh, in the National League, who would you vote for? And he said, Acuna, without hesitation. <laughs> he said, Acuna, uh, because of just all, all that he does, um, the diversity of his contributions. He could rob a home run, hit a home run, hit one 500 feet, hit a single the other way. And Acuna plays every day as well. So uh, it's interesting. So Matt Olson is on record. He's a great teammate as well. He's on record as saying Acuna is his choice. Um, I, I think that Matt might deserve a little more credit in that discussion, but uh, I think he probably gave the answer that I would give right now, but it's a lot closer than I think a lot of people realize right now. He is also only, you mentioned, this is game 118. Well, this would be his 118th game. He has missed just six games over the last four seasons. Pretty remarkable. Amazing. Uh, you know, I mean, not he's missed six of those games, so not quite the Iron Man, but pretty pretty darn close to it. Uh, John Morosi, thank you so much for taking the time out. Enjoy the Braves taking a couple off the Yankees this week. Hey, uh, uh, that certainly would help the Jays in that respect as well. So, Blake, uh, look forward to it. Always enjoy our conversations. Thanks so much. John Morosi of MLB Network. Uh, Jays off tonight, so make sure you check out Yankees-Braves in the showcase game on MLB Network that John will be a part of. Braves are kind of must-watch right now anyway. uh, We're going to take a little break. We're going to try to set up this Jays-Philly series Next, uh, Steve Lauber of the Philadelphia Inquirer is going to join us. It was supposed to be Matt Gelb of The Athletic, but we'll, we'll get a different perspective on what's going down in Philadelphia there. Also got a few more of your, your questions uh, that I didn't get to earlier that I'll sprinkle, and I'll do one right now too. Alex from the Junction in Toronto asks, uh, injuries aside, what would your ideal rotation and bullpen be come playoff time? Do I think Kikuchi would be a valuable, effective arm in the bullpen instead, even though he's including, even though he's killing it right now, Alex, I think honestly, this is the biggest question I have on the pitching side down the stretch here is you say Kikuchi has been one of your three best starters this year. And by that, and by all merit and logic that flows from that, he should start playoff games for you. However, of the rotation pieces, he's the only one I could really see being super effective out of the bullpen. When you talk about, well, would his stuff play up? What pockets of lineups could you use against them? Look, I don't, I don't think it's entirely out of the realm of possibility that a Hyunjin Ryu or Chris Bassett could come in and, you know, give you a couple innings 
or something like that. But Kikuchi is the one guy that I'm like, yeah, he would be electric as a reliever. We saw it last year, and that was before he had the control issues more under control. So now you look at a better version of Kikuchi who trusts his stuff a little bit more, who peppers the zone with it a little bit more. I think he'd be an awesome kind of five, six out or or a toughest part of the order, lefty heavy part of the order guy out of the bullpen. I just, I think there's a crossover point at which he's been too good as a starter to do that. And we're not all the way there yet, but if he keeps stacking starts like he's stacked and he comes out tomorrow and gives you six or seven great innings again, it gets tougher and tougher. So that's a great question. I don't have an answer for it right this second because man, I Kikuchi has made me change my mind on it. Even, and I say that as someone who was Kikuchi optimistic, uh, did not think you'd get the level of Kikuchi where putting him in a bullpen where he'd be very good uh, feels uncomfortable because he's been so damn good as a starter. He'll start tomorrow against Zach Wheeler as the Phillies juggle a new six-man rotation around some off days of their own and try to get themselves October ready. We'll take a break. We'll talk to Steve Lauber of the Philadelphia Inquirer about that Phillies team as Jay's Talk Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Smart takes on the biggest stories in sports. The Fan Drive Time with Ben Ennis. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. You got to be... You got to be in a certain way to eject a player and then his manager in the same game, especially when that manager's a a pretty nice guy. That's what happened to Rob Thompson on the weekend. Uh, Phillies had a bit of a frustrating series. Uh, They were actually doing some of their own look back as well. They were saluting the 1983 and 1993 pennant winning teams. Don't know what happened to that 1993 team. Uh, Just it escapes me what happened once the playoffs rolled around. Um, They just won six of 10 on a homestand. They are sitting in a wild card spot, but it was a bit of a frustrating weekend. Scott Lauber of the Philadelphia Inquirer joins us now. Scott, good morning. How are you? Good morning. How are you? I am good. Thank you, Uh, man. How... How bad does an umpire have to be to get Rob Thompson that fired up? As I understand it, he's a he's a pretty nice guy. Yeah, you guys know him well. Uh, <laughs> uh, being being Canadian uh, as he is, and he's a very proud Canadian. And you're right, he's a very kind of even keeled, mild mannered, mellow guy. And um, it was uh, they did not like to call the inning before on <laughs> on Alec Bohm uh, with the bases loaded, and Alec Bohm got tossed, and then Bryce Harper comes up to uh, start the eighth and he didn't like a call third strike and he had a few words for the umpire. And I think, I think what Thompson was doing there was making sure that uh, he didn't lose another player in that game and that Harper didn't do anything to get himself ejected from, from that game. But um, yeah, they had some issues with the umpiring yesterday. They also had some opportunities early in that game. They had the bases loaded uh, against Sonny Gray didn't score um, they obviously left the bases loaded on uh, in the seventh inning. So they had opportunities to score outside of the umpiring, but 
not exactly Alex McKay, Alex McKay's best day. I don't think behind the plate. It sounds similar to how things have been going for the Jays at time at times lately. There was a game last week where George Springer and John Schneider both got tossed in a very similar situation. And the Jays have had yesterday aside some issues hitting with runners in scoring position on their own. I was actually looking at the fan graphs leaderboards today by weighted runs created plus. So we're adjusting it and putting everyone on the same scale. And the Phillies are just one spot ahead of the Blue Jays executing in those runners in scoring positions situations, uh, both down in the bottom 10 of the league where you don't usually find playoff teams. Uh, has that been, you know, if we're zooming into what's been going on with the Phillies, obviously there's been some positive on, on the, the pitching side, but has the inability to execute with runners in scoring position, has that been the primary talking point throughout this Philly season? Yeah, it's been a talking point. It's been a frustration point for, for them, for, uh, a lot of the year, I would I would even zoom out further, and I would I would point to the fact that uh, their best players have not been their best players for the majority of the year. And I'm talking about Bryce Harper, Trey Turner. Um, I know Kyle Schwarber sitting there with 30 home runs, but um, you know it's there have been plenty of ups and downs with him. You look at the average, you look at the on base percentage, not not very good. Um, you know, I, I think some of their younger guys, Bryson Stott, Alec Bohm, Brandon Marsh, um, have been their, more, their most consistent hitters really throughout most of the year. And uh, those are guys who, when this year started, it was, you know, they were complimentary guys. And they were guys who the Phillies said, look, as second and third year guys, if they continue to improve, it could make the difference between, you know, let's say 88 wins and 95 wins, but they did not expect those guys to carry them for stretches as they have this year. So um, it's just been, a, I think, a, an overall um, uh, lack of consistency from guys that they expect more from. And uh, this homestand, they just came out of a 10-game homestand. They finally showed some signs of, um, you know, finally doing some of the things that uh, that characterized this offense, namely hitting the ball out of the ballpark. They hit, I want to say, like, 55 homers in the first eight games. I mean, uh, excuse me, uh, they, they hit like, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of the number here. I mean, they hit a ton of home runs uh, early in the homestand. Um, they um, uh, they did not hit over the weekend against the Twins, but the offense did certainly come alive. Uh, Trey Turner um, has had an interesting year. You know, he signs the big contract and is having uh, by far the worst year of his career. He comes, they come home for the homestand. Uh, fans decide to give him a standing ovation to kind of show that they're they're supportive of him, um, coincidentally or not. And I think um, it's mostly coincidental. <laughs> he did have a really good homestand, um, Harper, um, uh, Schwarber. So, I mean, finally, um, a lot of those guys that they expect to do some things uh, did have a big homestand, at least until the final weekend. Well, that's that's good for them. Let's hope that they stay cool two more games here because <laughs> the Blue Jays are, you know, again, the similarities there. Your, your best players haven't been your best players, and the pitching staff's kept you afloat, but the offense hasn't been quite what you expected. So the Phillies, you know, they sit 16th in offense when we control for a few factors. Like you just said, a couple guys underperforming, but this is a team in a playoff spot. So we can obviously turn to the pitching side of things to see what has gone well, what has them in this position. I think the obvious one from this past week was uh, Michael Lorenzen throwing a no hitter um, just for you, Scott, like getting to cover the no hitter. And I know, I think you wrote like four or five different things off of the no hitter because how often are you going to get to do a no hitter? Um, and how, how much fun was that? And, and has the Michael Lorenzen experience been over these first couple weeks? 
Yeah, so I'll just I'll say 55 runs in the first yes, eight games. Sorry. I, I, I say home runs. Um, no, you're right. You know, look, um, on a personal note, I've been covering Major League Baseball for 18 years, um, time time in Philadelphia, time with the Red, covering the Red Sox in Boston, and uh, I had never covered a single pitcher no-hitter uh, in 18 years. I did it in the minor leagues, but never covering it in the major leagues. And so um, the Phillies went eight years between um, – between no hitters, Cole Hamels in 2015 to Michael Lorenzen the other night, and so it's not something that happens very often. Certainly not to the Phillies, and uh, so yeah, it was you know it was one of those nights that kind of took me back a little bit to the postseason last year, uh, the environment in the ballpark. There weren't as many people there on a on a Wednesday night in August. I think that the uh, they announced about 30,000, uh, but people were on their feet. They were aware of what was going on. Uh, they were hanging on every pitch. He obviously finishes the no-hitter, and then it's a huge party on the field and in the clubhouse, and um, Kyle Schwarber at one point was walking through the clubhouse. This was kind of late at night, and he said, well, I kind of felt like a postseason shower, you know, like it was later on, and it was after everyone had gotten together, and, and, and you know, Dave Dombrowski walked through the clubhouse at one point, and guys were giving him uh, an ovation and saying, you know, nice trade, nice, uh, good job there. Because uh, they've just picked up Lorenzen before the, you know, at the trade deadline. So um, it was, it was, um, it was definitely a night like they're not going to have, I don't think, um, again until they probably clinch a playoff series if they are fortunate enough to uh, get in the playoffs and and uh, win a round or two or or move on even further than that as they did last year. So it was, it was kind of that sort of environment, and you know, factor in all the other things like the, you know, it was Lorenzen's first start at home. Um, as I said, they got him at the deadline. He pitched in Miami for his first start. It was his first start for the Phillies in Philadelphia. Um, his Because of that, his mother was there. His wife and his daughter were there. Um, there were other things that went on in that game. Weston Wilson, who had just gotten called up from AAA, hit a home run at his first at-bat. That doesn't happen all that often. So um, Nick Castellanos hit his 200th home run in that game, uh, career home run. So... There were a lot of things going on, and um, um, you know there were a lot of different offshoots of that. Uh, you know how the trade came together, and why they got Lorenz in, and obviously didn't see um, a no hitter coming, but they thought that they were going to get a guy who was going to help the back of their rotation a little bit. And um, so, certainly something that was a highlight of this long ten game homestand was that uh, that no hitter. So one of the trickle downs of that, Michael Lorenzen throws uh, about a million pitches by modern standards, and they say, hey, we could use uh, this guy. We could use a little extra rest for this guy. We've got a couple off days ahead. We've got six starters we trust right now. And look, Taiwan Walker is probably a guy who could use a little extra rest too. So the Phillies have said they're going to roll with a six-man rotation for a little bit here. Coming out of the off day today, they'll start that off with Wheeler and Nola in this series against the Jays, and then and continue to roll a six man from there. Uh, Scott, what was your take on that decision versus the option of, you know, finding a, a different way to try to get Taiwan Walker, right. Or just sending Sanchez back down to the minors, even though he's been pretty effective for them, uh, that decision to roll six man for a little bit here. What did you make of it? Yeah. So, I mean, this goes back a little ways. So yesterday was their 17th consecutive game without an off day. And, um, when they began that stretch um, 18 days ago now uh, in Pittsburgh, um, it was the weekend before the trade deadline, and I asked Rob Thompson at that time, would you consider going to a six-man rotation with this long stretch of games? 
And he said, well, we'll see what happens. I mean, we'll see what happens at the deadline. We'll see what happens um, moving forward. And I think had they not pulled off that trade for Lorenzen, they probably don't do this. They probably don't go to a six-man uh, at that point because their sixth man would have been Bailey Falters, a lefty, was in AAA at the time. And um, don't think they really looked at him as a um, as an option, even in a, in a six-man rotation for a short period of time. He was more, you know, um, somebody gets hurt, you call, call him up, um, but they weren't going to bring him up to kind of insert him in to go to a six-man. Then they trade for Lorenzen, um, and that was, you know, I think on the fifth day of their 17 consecutive days without uh, games without an off day. And so Lorenzen gets there, and they insert Lorenzen in the rotation, and they say, okay, for the rest of this stretch, this 17-game stretch, we're going we're gonna to go to a six-man um, rotation. Now, they get to this week, and they have the off day today. They have the off day Thursday coming out of Toronto. And then they have an off day the following Wednesday. I think it's three days off in a period of about 11 days. So the plan was pair it back to five to five starters for this stretch because you don't want to give too many guys too too much rest with the off days. Uh, they went into the weekend thinking that that was what they were going to do. And um, Taiwan Walker uh, has struggled his last few starts. His velocity was down uh, on Saturday night. He's got a bit of a dead arm um, here in August and, and a history of having some rough second halves the last two years with the Mets. So they said, all right, well, we're sitting here with these six starters. We do have these three off days. It's going to present a little bit of a challenge, but let's stick with, essentially let's stick with the six-man rotation, although Walker will not pitch this week at all on the road trip. So it is a six-man still, although it's kind of a five-man because Walker is sort of out of the mix active but out of the mix for the next week. So they're going to use some of this newfound pitching depth to kind of back off him a little bit. And then when they get into next week, they have an important series against the Giants next Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. I think they're sort of targeting Taiwan Walker for that Wednesday game, possibly, um, depending on how he comes out of this extended rest. So, yeah, it's a six-man rotation. Um, It's been a six-man rotation. It's kind of, uh, I guess, technically going to remain a six-man though they're they're sort of, as I said, kind of removing Taiwan Walker from, from the equation here for the next week or so. Do you worry at all? And, and again, this is short term. There are a couple off days to, to maybe help with this, and it can't be worse than 17 and 17, as we just saw here in Toronto, uh, as well as the parallels between these two teams continue. But uh, is there a, a, any concern at all about the toll that running with a six man takes on this bullpen because it does shorten the bullpen to seven. And there are, you know, guys like Sir Anthony Dominguez, who's, who's freshly ish back from injury, a, a guy like, you know, Jeff Hoffman, who's been an awesome story, but has been pretty heavily used of late. Is there any concern on, on that side of things for the Phillies? Yeah, I think there is. And I think that's one of the reasons why the six man rotation is not sustainable for, for that much longer. Um, one of the reasons why they didn't really uh, want to get into this week and continue to use that, um, whether it was going to mean pushing Christopher Sanchez back to the bullpen, whether it was going to mean sending him down because he has options and um, recalling an actual reliever to keep Sanchez stretched out. And then maybe you bring him back when the rosters expand in September. But yeah, I mean, you mentioned Hoffman, you mentioned Dominguez. I'd give you two other names, Craig Kimbrell and Gregory Soto. And they've been, um, they've been used quite heavily in part because 
Dominguez and Jose Alvarado, who are, they kind of have four guys at the back of the bullpen that they love in the late innings. And it's Kimbrel, Soto, Alvarado, and Dominguez. And Alvarado's been out for a month with, um, a little over a month, five weeks now with, uh, with an elbow, elbow inflammation. Dominguez missed a month and recently came back. He had kind of an oblique, uh, strain. So without Dominguez for a month and then without Alvarado for a month, it's been a heavy, heavy load on Kimbrel and Soto, who I believe I looked it up last week, and I believe it still holds. They're both on pace to make over 70 appearances. It would be a career high for Soto, and it would be a high for Kimbrell since 2011 when he was considerably younger than he is now. He's 35 years old. So I think they're watching those two very carefully because they want to make sure that they have them available down the stretch and in October uh, as much as they can. And Alvarado is probably a week or so away from being back. He's going to go out on a rehab assignment in the minor leagues this week. Dominguez is still working his way back um, into that late-inning role that they expect him to fill. So, um, yeah, I mean, just having one less body and then, um, you know, having their big four at the back really now is three-and-a-half um, is is certainly a concern for them. It's a it's a tough spot to be in, and like I said, the Jays have managed through a similar thing with the six-man rotation through a heavy part of schedule, and it's not ideal, but at least on the Jays' side, the pitchers didn't slow down. It was the bats that slowed down. Similar feeling with this Philadelphia Phillies team, so it's going to be very interesting Tuesday and Wednesday to see two teams who've had similar strengths and weaknesses and challenges this year go head-to-head just for a two-set. Uh, Scott Lauber, Philadelphia Inquirer, thank you so much for taking the time out this morning. Sure thing. Anytime. Scott Lauber, Philadelphia Inquirer. Uh, One note on that bullpen as well is that Jeff Hoffman, kind of a dude now. He's uh, certainly you're not going to look back on the Troy Tulowitzki trade and miss what could have been with Jeff Hoffman. He's had a pretty interesting career is one way to put it. So if you think back to 2015, he was one of the Blue Jays top prospects. He was a 2014 first round pick. He gets dealt with Miguel Castro, Jesus Tinoco and Jose Reyes for Troy Tulowitzki and Latroy Hawkins uh, a couple years down the line. It has, he's gotten lots of opportunity with Colorado. It's never really worked out. Uh, they trade him in the Robert Stevenson trade. And then, you know, that doesn't work out. He's granted free agency. He signs with the twins. They release him. The Phillies pick him up on a minor league deal. And now after, after that much time, that many stops, uh, things are finally clicking for Jeff Hoffman. So this is technically his eighth season in the major leagues. Not technically. It is his eighth season in the major leagues, Uh, but he entered this year with a career ERA up around six. Certainly not what any of us expected for Jeff Hoffman. Initially, he's been awesome for that Phillies bullpen. He has a 288 ERA so far this year. Every underlying component metric backs that up. His swinging strike rate is way higher than we've ever seen it. Uh, The strikeout rate is finally at the level his stuff as a prospect had promised. And he's trimmed the walks and got the ground balls up. So a lot of things working in Jeff Hoffman's favor. Now it's just 34 innings. You never know if that's going to turn into a pumpkin. But cool to see a guy at age 30 uh, finally have things click into place almost a decade after the Blue Jays drafted him. We'll probably see him at some point in this two-game set. Again, it's a, it's just a two-gamer down at Rogers Center. It's going to be Wheeler against Kikuchi on Tuesday, Nola against Gosman on Wednesday. I'll be on the call for both of those uh, with Ben Schulman, which should be a lot of fun down at the park. We're expecting a, a flurry of updates from the Blue Jays tomorrow, see how Bo Bichette's doing. We expect Jordan Romano to be activated, Danny Jansen and, and Matt Chapman probably 
really getting use out of this uh, this extra day off here, given the the bumps and bruises they're dealing with. Kevin Kiermaier getting closer to a return, as is Trevor Richards. Uh, the Jays also signed Matt Weisler to uh, a minor league deal, so he'll be pitching down with AAA Buffalo. If you're really worried about relief pitching depth, which you shouldn't be because uh, the Jays have plenty of it as Romano and Richards near health. No update on Chad Green yet, by the way. He's in concussion protocols. He's done some light cardio and stuff like that. Um, but it sounds like that's going to be one they they take very, very cautiously after he was hit in the head with a ball last week. Off day today for the Blue Jays, but Blair and Barker still have you from 5 to 7. We'll be back with you 10 a.m. tomorrow. Save some of the uh, the mailbag questions we got today that I didn't get around to. We'll sprinkle those in tomorrow, but we've got a pretty loaded show tomorrow as well. Uh, MLB.com updated their latest prospect rankings and system rankings. So we'll talk to Jonathan Mayo there, uh, Chris Black on Tuesday, as always, Michael Bauman, Caitlin McGrath. So tomorrow should be uh, a lot of fun. If you can't wait till then, Marchese and McKee coming up next, Blair and Barker five to seven. Uh, thanks to Jeff as party, Lance Kennedy and Jennifer Rolnick behind the glass. And this isn't baseball related. I know I mentioned it already, but Alex Wong's uh, new book prehistoric on the history of the Raptors is available for pre-order now. And he had a podcast with Will Lou on the Raptor show podcast. If you check that out, we'll talk to you at 10 a.m. tomorrow.